0: Welcome to The Bunker, a podcast for students of American history. Today's date is April 3rd, 2020, and this is episode number 11. Today we're heading to Kokomo, Indiana, to discuss the second coming of the KKK. I want to kick this episode off with an excerpt from Linda Gordon's book, The Second Coming of the KKK, uh, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, and the American political Tradition." Here it goes. On July 4th, a mass Independence Day celebration attracted 50,000 people to Kokomo, Indiana. Reserved train cars bought people from Indiana and nearby states. This patriotic gather- gathering was a celebration of Americanism. The food was so plentiful it required several rows of tables, each extending the distance of a block. In addition to the heaps of casseroles and desserts, the organizers provided 5,000 cases of soda pop or near beer, 55 buns, six tons of beef, 250 pounds of coffee and 2500 pies. There was a children's area featuring games and sports from toddlers to teens. Grown-ups could watch a six-round boxing match, a barber a barbershop quartet, circus performers and an evening film known as a talkie. As dusk fell, a huge airplane circled overhead with a huge white cross flashing from the fuselage while an acrobat performed daredevil feats on the wings of the plane. Nighttime at these events would always be featured by parades of hundreds in their robes carrying torches, what was then an American tradition. So why am I in north-central Indiana to tell the story of the Second Coming? Well, according to historian Robert Coughlin, literally half of the Kokomo residents were members of the KKK during its height in the 1920s. Um, Best estimates from census data says that's about 15,000 people in a town of 30,000. Uh, they achieved national notoriety for this little clan gathering. Um, estimates as high as two hundred thousand, as low as ten thousand. Linda Gordon put it at fifty thousand. Where these clan members and supporters gathered at Malfalfa Park for this massive conclave. At the conclave, a gentleman named D.C. Stevenson was elevated to position of position of Grand Dragon. Now, why is that important? David Curtis D.C. Stevenson was appointed the Grand Dragon. He was from Indiana, so he's the head of recruiting in seven other states. He has massive wealth and political power, uh, one of the most prominent national Klan leaders, and he is viewed as responsible for reviving the Klan and widening its base, considered by many the most powerful man in Indiana at that time. It's him, it's Stevenson, that will bring down the Klan, uh, and we'll get to its demise later in the podcast. So to understand the KKK uh, as a mass, as a mass movement, as an American movement, it's completely legitimate in the 1920s. It's open. We need to do a little uh, comparison here. The old Klan um, versus the new clan. So you may recall the old clan, born out of the post-Civil War days and early Reconstruction, starts as a, a little social club in Pulaski, Tennessee, led by Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, used torture, lynchings, and basically they're trying to reimpose servitude on newly emancipated and enfranchised African-Americans after the end of slavery. So in your mind, hopefully you can recall the amendments, the Civil War amendments uh, that led to those extension of rights. So the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 becomes codified with the 13th Amendment. Uh, the 14th extends citizenship to African-Americans. And the 15th Amendment gives the franchise the vote to black males. First time the word male was ever used in the Constitution. The Klan was essentially a terrorist organization. They used lynchings as a mode of intimidating and terrorizing the entire population down south. But mostly they were regulated to the south. Uh, new Clan is different on six fronts. Uh, number one, they're not secret. All right? They're still wearing their white hoodies and all that cool stuff, but they openly campaign um, for political office, uh, acknowledging uh, and celebrating their membership in the organization. Uh, second difference, it's a mass movement with somewhere between three and six million members in the 1920s. Uh, include women. There was a women's version, the WKKK. Uh, it was strongest north of the Mason-Dixon line. There's actually more Klan members in Massachusetts than there is in Mississippi in the 1920s. This may surprise you. This next difference, they were largely nonviolent. All right. Were there violent episodes? Yes. Were there still lynchings? Absolutely. But all in all, as a whole, it was a community, communal organization. Um, so the, not, the violent piece is a small element of the new and improved Klan that's gone nationwide. Uh, and the last and most distinctive difference between the old and new Klan is the new Klan, while it maintained intense racism um, directed mainly at African-Americans and other people of color, it fused that racism with religious bigotry and focused its um, attacks, its, its modern attacks now in the 1920s on Catholics and Jews. Okay, So kind of differences between the old Klan and the new Klan. Uh, Some quick connections to the second coming of the KKK and this mindset of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. We can actually connect this to F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, The Great Gatsby, which reflects the nativist ideology during the 20s. Uh, There's a violence, and some of you have read this book, so you know what I'm talking about. There's violence all the way through that text. And part of that violence is a byproduct of the, the racial fears and the conflicts that are kind of brewing in this intermixing of peoples as more and more immigrants are coming to America, which uh, rich white Americans believe their culture and identity needed to be preserved and protected. Uh, and they worried that this influx of foreigners would only bring filth and violence to the states as well as corrupt uh, the patriarchal system. All right. So... It radicalized and racialized uh, the culture of the 20s. It's this influx of foreigners. So in the book, in chapter one, Tom Buchanan is having that conversation with Nick Nick and Daisy, and he quotes this book that he's reading. The book he references is The Rise of the Colored Empires, and here's the quote. Well, it's a fine book, and everyone ought to read it. The idea is if we don't look out for the white race, we will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff. It's been proved. I know. I do a really good Tom Buchanan. Uh, Rise of the Colored Empire was actually based on an actual book called The Rising Tide of Color, which purported to use scientific methods to justify discrimination against non-white people. Uh, By describing the book in The Great Gatsby in such affirming terms, you get a sense of the racial leanings of this waspy Tom Buchanan. So the idea of, of the racial tension that's brewing in the 20s captured in The Great Gatsby. Um, There's some irony here that I think you will appreciate. Tom Buchanan's mindset captures the aggregate mindset of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the 1920s, but you might want to think of why are they afraid of a marginalized minority that has limited power? (laughs) So to understand that, you have to understand what's happening in the cities. So the cities are filling up with people from Southern and Eastern Europe and Central Europe, uh, the whole second half of the 19th century. And those people are gaining enormous political clout and power in these big cities. So these saloon owners were mostly, excuse me, <coughs> political bosses. And those political bosses are tapping into that immigrant population to build their base. So they're electing representatives, they're getting to Congress, they're getting to the Senate. In the middle of the country, that that white Protestant native-born part of the country is seeing themselves as losing power. All right, So that rural-urban dynamic starts to play out. So what happened to the second KKK? What brought them down? Well, the first uh, is going to be a scandal. D.C. Stevenson, that Grand Dragon from the Hoosier State, uh, he's going to be tried and convicted of murdering a young state employee. Uh, The scandal and the subsequent trial damaged the Klan's image as guardians of morality. He was sentenced to life in prison. Another consideration is the clan itself was a a for-profit corporation believe it or not. Now you had to pay an initiation fee to join the clan. Uh, the initiation fee was $120. Just to get a sense of the type of people that could afford the initiation fee, $120 in 1925 is about $1700 today. So you had to just to get your clan card, you had to drop almost 2 gur. Okay. And even within the organization itself, and some of you who maybe had didn't have done Taekwondo as kids will appreciate this. Um, you earned levels or patches or particular stitchings on your white robe as you moved up in rank more symbolic than anything else. All right. So they had to buy the robes from the organization. And then you had to buy these pieces of these patches also that would cost you additional fees as well. Um, these badges or patches just more rank and symbol than anything else. Okay. Um, A lot of people that became disenchanted with the Klan came upset because they joined the organization expecting to do something. Um, But all they really talked about at the Klan meetings in the early stages was administration and fundraising and bills and all that stuff. So that's an issue. Uh, Perhaps the most important thing bringing down the Klan was that their vision of an America decaying from um, foreign ideologies, dangerous immigrants, moral decay never really came to fruition. Uh, The post-World War I recession eased, and by the middle of the 1920s, the American economy had boomed again. Uh, Labor disputes that the Klansmen warned against from communist agitations, they faded. Uh, The black migration continued without causing much unrest or social revolution. Uh, Immigrant restrictions were passed in both 1921 and 1924 that limited the number of people arriving from Eastern Europe. And the age of the flapper moved ahead, whether moralists liked it or not. Right? So the Klan lost its influence, and by the time we get to the 1930s, membership had dipped to about 30,000. We had a worldwide depression, so it shrunk the ranks of the KKK. They had other things that they needed to focus on. All right, to close up this episode, I just want to bring together the intersection of a couple different threads we've talked about in previous uh, podcasts and also in class before the school closure. So this brings in a World War I theme. Um, the nativist response we see from anti-immigrant sentiments and then prohibition and, and, and all those can kind of string through right to the KKK, um, where I'll give you their position on prohibition which probably is not going to surprise you. I want to read a passage from a book called last call, the rise and fall of prohibition. And this little excerpt is going to take us back to 1918. Here it goes. The war's clinching contribution to the dry cause arrived in February, 1918 as the 18th Amendment was beginning its journey through the state legislature. We have German enemies across the water, a dry politician named John Strange told the Milwaukee Journal that month. We have German enemies in this country, too. And worst of all, our German enemies, the most treacherous, the most menacing, are Paps, Schlitz, Blatz, and Miller. Strange called arms was the preface to the Senate investigation of the German-American alliance directed and brilliantly exploited by Wayne B. Wheeler, an extravaganza that played out as the perfect accompaniment of the ratification campaign. So Wheeler was the organizer behind uh, Prohibition. He wanted that amendment passed, and he worked every lever to get that done. So he brought in all parties that would support a Prohibition agenda. So he didn't care who you were. As long as the issue was in support of Prohibition, you were welcome into the pool. Okay. Um, He uses, speaking of levers of government, one of the people he employed to help send the message out was George Creel, who was used by Wilson as the head of the uh, Propaganda Committee of Public Information during World War I. Let's wrap this up by just giving you the stance on uh, the prohibition uh, from the KKK. You're not going to be surprised by that uh, stance. It's pretty evident and obvious. Uh, The KKK was for prohibition. Okay. Simply stated, for prohibition. Uh, In their mind... The Catholics were the only ones that drank, uh, and the Jews were the only ones that bootlegged or bootlegged, excuse me, that illegal hooch. Of course, um, that's all pretty much nonsense. Did members of the KKK drink? Absolutely, uh, but they're targeting the Catholics and the Catholic Catholic influx, and of course they're targeting the Jews and um, targeting them as bootleggers. All this is nonsense, but it made for a pretty easy a conversation at these clan rallies. Yeah, there's the bad guy. It's the us versus them dynamic. All right. We will uh, see you next time. We're going to actually use this transition to go into the next episode. So the next episode, what I'm going to do is um, kind of look at this undercurrent of xenophobia and discrimination that fueled the federal government's effort to curb immigration and defined who and what an American was. All right. We'll see you next time.